Welcome to World Policy on Air, a weekly podcast from the pages and website of World Policy Journal, published by the nonprofit World Policy Institute in New York. I'm David Alpern. In this week's program, posting October 30th, 2015, we consider Beijing's investment invasion of Italy as a gateway to the EU. Francesco Gallietti, a former senior advisor to the Italian Minister of Finance, wrote about it for the WPJ Fall 2015 issue, under the headline, China Slips Quietly into Italy and Europe. We'll also point out other top features in the new fall issue, but first, some timely insights from Washington with Paul Brandis, who runs the West Wing Reports news service. Well, it's called mission creep. That's when a project or endeavor gradually grows bigger in scale, more complex. Though the White House denies it, this is what appears to be going on now with the U.S. in Iraq. The administration is weighing whether to send a squadron of Apache attack helicopters to Iraq to help it deal with the Islamic State. Such a move could mean deployment of hundreds more U.S. service members to Iraq. And Washington is also weighing the possible deployment of forces on the ground in Syria to be embedded among moderate rebels or Kurdish forces there. Iran's Supreme Leader has said that Tehran would not talk with the U.S. about anything beyond the nuclear deal, but has now accepted an invitation to talk with the U.S. and Russia about Syria, namely how to end that country's devastating civil war. It would be the first formal talks between Washington and Tehran since the nuclear accord was reached in July. That Iran will join the talks is a reflection of Russia's clout. American officials have conceded that no succession plan in Syria could be developed without Iran's involvement. China has said stay away from those artificial islands it is building in disputed areas of the South China Sea, but the U.S. Navy has effectively thumbed its nose at Beijing by sending a guided missile destroyer within 12 miles of one of those islands. The Obama administration says it is a freedom of the seas issue and rejects China's claim to sovereignty in the disputed regions. The over-display of force can be seen, White House officials say, as the strongest challenge yet to Chinese President Xi's desire to enforce territorial claims in what the U.S. calls international waters. It's notable, by the way, that the White House waited until after Xi's visit a month ago to tweak the Chinese. It's another sign of rising tensions between the two Asia-Pacific powers. For World Policy On Air, I'm Paul Brandis at the White House. You're listening to World Policy on Air. Now this. There is some concern, but is very unjustified. Italy needs to understand that Chinese capitals are one of the best opportunities to give breath, time and future to large industrial choices. So we have to be able to resolve these doubts. Despite the assurance of supporters like economics professor Carlo Alberto Cannavale of Bocconi University, heard in translation on New China TV, many other Italian economists, trade unions, and even some government intelligence chiefs are worried about Beijing's acquisition this summer of iconic tire maker Pirelli for $7.8 billion, and it was only one of the financially troubled country's crown jewels in manufacture 
energy, communications, and finance that have been swept up by a rising tide, some say tsunami, of Chinese investments, despite Beijing's own stock market woes. Some experts also see Italy as a gateway to China's further financial invasion of Europe, perhaps in strategic partnership here and there, with a Russia eager to slap back against Western financial and trade sanctions. That strategy and its fallout for those so invaded is explained in the fall issue of World Policy Journal by Francesco Galietti, a former senior advisor to the Italian Minister of Finance, now CEO of Rome-based Policy Sonar, political risk consultants. His essay is headlined, China Slips Quietly into Italy and Europe, and we talked about it recently for this podcast. Francesco Galietti, welcome to World Policy on Air. Thank you for hosting me. Italy certainly can use a financial boost these days. Give us uh, the basic outlines of the country's current economy, growth, employment, debt. Yes. Well, our GDP growth isn't exactly the best you can wish for. Uh, Italy's uh, GDP growth is 0.7% and is largely predicated to exceptional boosts. I mean, I'm obviously thinking of low oil prices or quantitative easing, the bazooka by ECB governor uh, Mario Draghi. And you should also bear in mind that Italy has seen uh, throughout 2015 huge uh, unprecedented tourist events um, like the Expo dedicated to food in Milano or the Catholic Holy Year, which is starting right now in fall in Rome. But, however, let me emphasize that we are still plagued by unprecedented youth unemployment. I'm speaking of one out of two Italian young Italians uh, uh, who are jobless, and this is combined with... Um, as we speak, with a very strong and largely uncontrolled uh, flow of illegal immigrants, uh, sometimes it's asylum seekers, so political immigrants, uh, uh, sometimes it's economic uh, immigrants. However, uh, all this contributes to to a growing sense of insecurity among vast sectors of uh, the Italian population. Let me give you some other figures. I mean, like I said that Youth unemployment is almost 50%, it's 48%. But in November last year, 2014, the Italian uh, National Statistics Office, ISTAT, uh, said that the overall unemployment rate uh, reached 13.2% in October alone. Um, it sounds harmless, it is not. It is the highest uh, percentage of unemployment percentage we've seen since 1977. Uh, well, uh, but let me also say that 1977 is when the stats, when the count began. Uh, in fact, today's unemployment is probably uh, the highest ever experienced uh, in the entire history of Italy. And um, what keeps the country united is family intra-family solidarity, literally, it's Italian grandpas sharing their pensions with their unemployed uh, grandsons and sons. This is the family, the, the secret glue of Italy, the only lifeline uh, for hundreds of thousands of Italian uh, workers. Uh, um, so this uh, eases the financial blow, but the situation is one in which foreign money is badly needed. 
You say new books about China's penetration of the Italian market are increasingly hot, but you also find roots and rationale for that penetration uh, in communist China's most famous book, uh, The Little Red One. Explain the connection. Well, um, it has to do with uh, a famous saying uh, by uh, Chinese uh, communist state leader Mao Zedong. Uh, he was he was famous for a quote: "Everything under heaven is in utter chaos." So the situation is excellent. This is a, a paradox, and probably back in the days Mao was not thinking of Europe, let alone Italy. But today's Italy is weak, it's chaotic, its elite struggle to maintain order, uh, and on the other hand, there's plenty of opportunity. Uh, Italy's geography and many of its assets are valuable and attract a great deal of interest from China. Well, Italy is now China's number two investment destination after Great Britain. Give us the figures there. Uh, well, uh, it is certainly the way you see, um, the, way, the way you just said, Italy uh, ranks the junior just to the UK. Uh, the reason uh, why uh, Italy is, um, is so loved by, by China is that Italy is selling some of its most precious assets, unlike the UK other European countries. Um, Italy is selling banks, it is selling uh, uh, listed assets. And so we have seen in 2014 the People Bank of China buying stakes in, say, the Italian oil and gas giant ENI for in the states, top 2%, which means they're visible. They, uh, the Chinese have to disclose the stakes. Uh, the, China is doing a lot of business on the sidelines with ENI. Uh, ENI sold, for example, a 20% stake in its Mozambique offshore oil project to the Chinese oil company CNPC. And there are many other deals uh, which attract attention. So certainly uh, um, we are seeing a lot of uh, acquisitions in Italy, um, and, and it's just the tip of the iceberg because we're here speaking of uh, assets that are visible to everyone that are listed on the Italian stock market. But the biggest chunk of investment by Chinese buyers is probably network assets, like in the case of um, the Italian state conglomerate, GDP, Casa Depositi e Prestiti. Last year, uh, and this explains the leap in the investment statistics, GDP agreed to, to sell uh, to the Chinese state, state grid corporation a 35% stake in uh, a company that holds controlling stakes in Italy's electricity grid and gas distribution grid. So Italy uh, attracts a lot of investment from China because Italy is the only European country that is giving away network assets. You say some purchases of small boutique operations have generated goodwill. Uh, what kind and why haven't they offended Italian pride? 
Well, you have to distinguish. Uh, we're seeing different kind of uh, investments from China. Some of some of uh, the investments are investments into trophy assets, into assets that most probably are, from a Chinese perspective, supposed to feed the, the growing. Uh, Chinese middle class, the new bourgeoisie. So you have a lot of brands, uh, in, uh, fashion brands, food brands. Uh, of course, in, on, the other, on the other hand, in China, you certainly have a bourgeoisie, a middle class that now wants the same thing Westerns ha have afforded all these years. And Italy is perfect for that, because unlike France, Italy uh, never uh, achieved the consolidation of its own brands in fashion and food. And so many of these tiny, nice little uh, assets are now up for grabs. But the overall figure is certainly surprising. I mean, like um, the Chinese uh, um, rating agency, Dagong, uh, that has its original headquarter, in, I mean, the European headquarter in Milan, so in Italy, said that. Chinese spent 18 billion euros in Italy last year alone. So you're suggesting uh, that there are a lot of tiny household uh, businesses now uh, going to China. Yes, that's certainly the case. However, there are a lot of uh, deals that, that are of a different nature. I'm speaking of Chinese buying sensitive assets, strategic assets. Obviously, that's, we shouldn't cry wolf. Always, but in some cases, uh, the kind of deals we're seeing are certainly not driven by purely financial and economic factors. Uh, you mentioned electricity uh, generation and distribution. I gather also Italian oil and gas operations have been targeted. Yes. Well, that's a, a big part of investment. It, make a lot, it makes a lot of sense, especially because Italian oil and gas players have just a tiny fraction of their business concentrated in Italy and are global players. So if you speak of ENI, ENI uh, ENI's frontier is now Africa uh, and Central Asia. And if you're speaking of Enel, Enel does a lot of its uh, business of its PNL in South America and North America. So you're not just speaking of Italian players, you're speaking of global players. Uh, and, and it makes a lot of sense for China to look at these assets. And by, uh, by buying stakes in these companies, China also signals proximity to Italy, because you're not just speaking of Italian companies, you're speaking of Italian state-owned enterprises. Both ENI and Enel are de facto Republic of Italy uh, in the world. They're Italy's best ambassadors in many parts of the world. And there are pending deals, I gather, for an airport and even the whole postal system. Yes, here is what I was trying, but this is exactly the case I was trying to make. So uh, some assets are strategic, so they're not like uh, uh, any other asset. So when you say a strategic asset, so you can discuss for hours and weeks what's strategic. And so 
uh, some assets always are strategic, like, uh, well, when if you're discussing energy, energy is strategic. If you're discussing defense, defense is strategic and sensitive. If you're, if you're discussing high-tech, much of that is strategic. But here, if you look at Italy, I mean, like, we're a large peninsula amidst the Mediterranean. So Italy, uh, uh, when you speak of ports, <laughs> obviously geography is an excellent way to understand the, uh, the Chinese interest in Italy. So Italy, we should never forget this, it was the final destination of the Silk Road. You remember the Silk Road, don't you? It linked European traders with Asia for centuries. So for a power like China, I power that codified the new Silk Road strategy, securing a strong foothold in, say, Venice, which is where Marco Polo began his journey seven centuries ago. It's imperative. And, and we, we know, because we're witnessing this, uh, that a group of managers of China's Silk Road Fund was cited in Venice, uh, where it was clearly trying to get, uh, get details on an investment in an offshore cargo platform, which, surprise, is designed to connect the northern Adriatic with continental Europe. So that's exactly uh, where the uh, maritime Silk Road needs the mainland Silk Road. Uh, we're speaking of um, an offshore platform eight miles off the mouth of the port of Malamocco, and uh, that's, a, that's an area that will allow today and tomorrow super large ships to call at the port of Venice without even having to dredge the existing lagoon channels. So it's a, it's a very ambitious project that is designed to exploit the potential of the waterway system along the Po River. It, it will offer through the port of Venice, of Giorgio, Porto Levante, and the inland port of Mantua, uh, other possible points of uh, a sea or um, a sea river or river land transfers. So it's, it's something completely unprecedented. I was interested. That's a, a kind of a global picture, but even municipal governments have been penetrated secondhand. Explain the F2I deal and its potential impact. Well, uh, it's important to understand that this is a space where China has has moved into, and like China seems to have a favor for um, Italy's municipal capitalism. I mean, like you're an American, you would probably call it municipal socialism. But the thing is, many of the assets that are left in the hands of the Italian state are not owned by the Italian central state, by the federal state. They're owned by local entities. So, and they're scattered across the entire peninsula. It's a divide and conquer game, in other words. And, and so, why is China uh, entering F2I, which is a domestic infrastructure investor that is partly owned by the Italian state conglomerate, GDP? Well, it is doing so because F2I uh, has a very strong track record of infrastructure investments with local governments. It obviously is a neighbor of uh, GDP, so it is, um, so to say, a local uh, uh, quasi-sovereign partner for uh, the Chinese Sovereign Wealth Fund, 
And it could represent a gateway into Italy's municipal capitalism. Um, it, it, let, let, all, let us also bear in mind that there, there isn't much of a consolidation there yet. And, and so everyone is hoping to see uh, consolidation, especially uh, in uh, utilities and telecoms. While no sale to Chinese buyers has yet been blocked, you say there are warnings in a government study, including intelligence services. Say more about those fears. Well, this is uh, somehow more tricky, but uh, uh, there has been one case in particular, uh, and, and that happened when uh, FinMechanica, the national technology and defense player, put its rail signaling assets uh, uh, on sale, and one Chinese player was bidding. That was a case in which there was a leak on a large Italian daily saying that the Italian dom uh, uh, domestic uh, security apparatus uh, uh, was very worried about threats to national security. And then eventually uh, the assets, the, the railway signaling assets, were sold to a Japanese uh, player, to Hitachi. But you're perfectly right in saying that there is no single uh, Italian CPUs. There is no clearing room. There is no single oversight body that decides uh, uh, what is okay and acceptable or even welcome and what is a no-fly zone. And so and we, uh, that's also why in bilateral talks uh, there never is this kind of angle. It's completely different than, uh, than what happens in, in the U.S., where you not only have CPUs, which is an, uh, a cross-governmental body, uh, but you also have a, a U.S.-China Congress uh, committee that scrutinizes uh, Sino-U.S. Uh, Sino deals. So with that is something uh, um, that is still missing in the Italian picture. You say it's also missing in the European Union, uh, given the strains on the EU revealed by the Greek financial crisis. How likely do you see such stepped-up financial security and the inevitable cooperation, coordination, sublimation of uh, national policies uh, to get that kind of oversight? European policies are exactly uh, what, what, what lower the defenses. And because their European uh, legal framework is predicated on the free flow of capital, uh, it, it is very difficult for national member states uh, to set up uh, policies that scrutinize, to scrutinize and veto foreign inbound deals. Uh, all of the, the legal schemes that were in place, uh, have been in the place, have been one by one uh, uh, torpedoed by European Court of Justice. So um, screening uh, and some uh, a, a security check is obviously still possible, but if you ask me whether this is possible through national regulations uh, or by setting up something like a U.S. CFUs, mm, 
And a European CFUSE is probably not possible. What is possible, however, is something that has less to do with the mechanics, with the legislative mechanics, and more with a cultural awareness. Um, and so it is having, making sure that the civil service and the deep state uh, I'm not speaking of the political level, have a greater awareness of the benefits and the risks of making deals uh, with a rising superpower like China. So it's certainly, uh, 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 it's not just an issue of mechanics, it's also a lot uh, an issue of, um, of um, awareness. Francesco Galietti, thank you. Thank you for hosting me. Francesco Galietti is a former senior advisor to the Italian Minister of Finance, now CEO of Rome-based Policy Sonar, political risk consultants. His essay in the fall 2015 issue of World Policy Journal is headlined, China Slips Quietly into Italy and Europe. Also featured in the new fall issue's Food Fight section, You'll find articles on smaller, smarter micro-farming, on proposals for preventing today's massive food waste and loss, and on cuisine controversy and nationalism. And listen next week when our podcast will feature a preview of the International Climate Change Conference in Paris next month, as highlighted in a WPJ conversation with Ségolène Royale, France's Minister of Ecology, Sustainable Development and Energy, under the headline, Feeding the World. World Policy on Air is a production of World Policy Journal at the nonprofit World Policy Institute in New York. Editor-publisher David Andelman, managing editor Jaffa Frederick, online news editor and podcast producer Matthew DeMello. I'm David Alpern. <laughs>